We'll start for tonight. Good to see you all again. We're, we were gone last week camping in Big Sur. We had a, a good, good quick trip, but glad to be back with you all this evening for uh, resuming this Doctrines of Grace study here into this 10th lesson. And uh, we're really in the midst of it now when it comes to the Doctrine of Election, which is a, a lot of what people want to learn about when they come to study on the Doctrines of Grace. The concept of election is usually what people want to jump to and start with. We didn't. I mean, we've already gone through nine big lessons before to get to this point. And they've been meant to build on one another, but nonetheless, here we are in the midst of, like I said, the doctrine of election. Last time we were together, lesson, lessons eight and nine, we covered conditional election. And tonight we're going to deal with the other side of the election debate, namely unconditional election. And uh, that being said, just, just to get us started, I'll try and be quick, but I want to give you another just quick reintroduction to the debate in case uh, you might be new with us. You know, Seth is actually here new. Uh, welcome. Good to have you. And uh, also, you know, we're recording these. We're putting them online. And chances are this lesson here on unconditional election, I just know that some people are going to jump straight to it instead of going through the first nine on the website. You know, they'll just go straight here. And that'd be a a bit of a a problem because they're meant to build on one another and you want to have the foundation we've laid in the past on the doctrines of sin and election in general. And so uh, that being said, I wanted a quick recap to get you up to speed that even if you haven't been here, you can still follow along or if you're you're relatively new, you can still follow along with what we're getting to tonight. So we're at the, the concept of election, the biblical truth of election. The, the fact of election is not up for grabs. The fact of election that God chooses some people or, or saves some people, uh, it's taught all over, all over Scripture that God chooses some for salvation. If the concept of election is new to you, I can't say anything other than go back to Lesson 7 on the website and download that because we covered that the basic fact of election. It's taught all over Scripture that God actually chooses some. It's a fact believed by both sides of this debate, Calvinists and Arminians. They both uphold the fact of election that God chooses some for salvation and and not others. Now, again, speaking of Calvinism and Arminianism, these are two branches of Christian theology that differently understand God's role and man's role in salvation, which is what this whole study is about, trying to figure out God's role and man's role in salvation. Is man active or passive in his own salvation? Does God actually save people or does he merely enable them to save themselves? Does God cooperate with man in salvation or does God bring it about essentially by himself? Calvinists in general believe that God alone takes the initiative in salvation, whereas Arminians believe that God and man cooperate. They both take the initiative in salvation. And this divide is reflected in how the two sides conceive of God's election. So again, they, believe it or not, it may be new to you, they both believe in, in the doctrine of election, that God chooses some for salvation, not all. The difference, though, comes down to, if you remember, how God does the choosing. That, that's where these two camps disagree. How did God decide to save the elect? Was it based on his own will and purposes or man's will and purposes? That's the divide right there. And so we covered lesson eight a couple lessons ago. We started with what Arminians believe. They believe that God made his choice of the elect based on man's will, man's free will choice of God. God chose people based on their choice of him. 
Now, as we covered, the Bible teaches very clearly that God's choice, his election, took place when? Before the foundation of the world. So Arminians rely on the concept of God's foreknowledge to account for his choice. They believe that before the moment of creation, God looked forward into time to see who would come to believe in him of their own free will. And then God elected those people. He chose them in, in advance, knowing that they would come to believe in him of, of their own free will. And so God's election or choice is therefore spoken of as conditional. His, his choice of people was conditioned on what? On their foreseen faith that he foresaw, foreknew they would believe. And on that condition, he chose them. This is conditional election. But as we discovered in Lesson 9, that was last time, the problem is this conditional election is not taught in Scripture. There's not a single Bible verse that teaches this concept of God foreseeing the faith of the elect and then choosing them who chose him first. There's not a single verse you can point to that teaches that. Man's foreseen faith is not once described as the basis of God's choice. It's always the result of God's choice. People believe as a result that God chose them, not so that God would choose them. In other words, people believe because they were elect. They're not elected because they believed. That is another way to describe the difference between these two sides. And also, in addition to lacking biblical support, the Armenian notion of conditional election suffers from many fatal flaws. And we spent a whole lesson covering how just the whole system breaks down, the concept breaks down. It doesn't even do what they, they think it does, which is account for God's love and so forth. That was all Lesson 9, and, and here I can only say go back one week and get Lesson 9 if you weren't here. And you want to learn more about all the problems with conditional election. Now we're back up to speed, and today we're getting into the other side, the other perspective, which is the Calvinist view of election, as it's often referred to. Calvinists believe that God made his choice of the elect based on not man's will, but his own will, just his own free will. God chose according to his purposes, according to the hidden yet perfect counsel of his will. God chose the elect based on nothing within them. They met no conditions. It was simply up to God's free choice. And so this belief is referred to as unconditional election. Are you catching the difference now? Conditional election versus unconditional election. And so Calvinists believe in unconditional election. This stands for, this represents the U in TULIP, that little acronym that describes the, the five points of Calvinism, stuff we've covered. So in this lesson, we're now getting to the U, the, the unconditional side of election. And we're going to spend our time defining, describing, and explaining the Calvinist side, how they see it, uh, election. And it's probably no surprise to you, but it's our contention that this is the correct view. Not because it's more logical, not because it's more popular, but because it's just so clearly taught in Scripture. And that's the goal between this week and next, because, spoiler alert, this will be a two-parter. It's just so clearly taught all over the Bible. So we're going to look at, between this week and next, the plethora of biblical support for unconditional election. Whereas conditional election could boast of not a single verse explicitly teaching it. There's not a single verse explicitly teaching God foresaw the faith of those and then elected them. 
And there's so many problems we cover with that as well. But to the contrary, unconditional election has tons of verses that not implicitly, but explicitly teach this is how God made his choice based on his will. It just says that all over. And we're going to see that this week and next. All right, we're going to start with uh, the Calvinist understanding of election just to you know, just be- better define what they believe, how they see it. And then, of course, we'll get to scripture shortly. The doctrine of unconditional election pertains to the actions and decisions of God before creation, whereby he predestined some to be saved, and he left the rest to receive his just punishment. Unconditional election states that God made his choice according to his own will, his own plan, his own purposes, not according to any condition in man. There's nothing in you that God saw as special, So therefore, he chose you. His choice was not conditioned on anything in you, your deeds, your faith, your perseverance, none of that. Of course, God can foresee all things, but that wasn't the basis of his choice. It was simply his choice, his will. Now, God's will is hidden. It's the hidden counsel of his will. We're not given a window into why did God choose me and not that person. We don't know. That's his hidden will. We are told, however, that man's merit or faith played no part in God's choice. He simply chose according to the perfect yet hidden counsel of his will. Question or comment? That's why it's called doctrine of grace. Mm-hmm. We don't merit it. Exactly right, Joe. That's why they're often referred to in total as the doctrines of grace because they really hold high and take seriously grace. It's unmerited favor, salvation from first to last is by grace, meaning unmerited. We didn't merit our election by having foreseen faith. It was from first to last God's doing. Yeah, that's why they're called the doctrines of grace. So in all, unconditional election views God's will as supreme, not man's will. That, that's another distinction because ultimately in Arminians, man's will trumps God's will. It determines fate. But rather, only God has a truly free will. And man's will can ultimately never thwart God's will, as we've studied before. God is comprehensively sovereign over all things. And that includes the salvation of sinners. There's a whole lesson we did on God's sovereignty. Remember that? And that includes the salvation of of sinners. Indeed, God orders all things after the counsel of his will, And all things means all things. It includes those who get saved. Now, how many people were unconditionally elected by God? The Bible doesn't say. But the elect are viewed as a closed group, a a definite group. In other words, their their, their number has been determined by God. Their names were written in his book before creation. Both sides, again, believe God elected before creation. The Calvinists understand that, that God made this choice of his own will. He was under no obligation to save anyone, to choose anyone. But simply according to his mercy and his love, did he decide, did he choose to save anyone at all? Where he, he didn't have to, he was not bound to save anyone, but to leave all humanity to just judgment would have been perfectly just for him to do. It was only by grace that he chose not only to save people, but to, to choose them, to set them aside for salvation, to enact this whole plan of salvation, which is his from start to last. In fact, if God did not intervene to save sinners, starting with that choice, the choice of election, 
none would be saved. And this is why we spent all this time studying total depravity and total inability. It just highlights that man on his own, in his fallen state, he would never would choose God. So if God did foresee who would believe in him of their own free will, he would foresee zero people choosing to believe in him, and that that's our fallen condition. Man will not choose. He cannot make that choice. We've studied man's limited ability. His will has been confined by the effects of the fall and the curse, such that the Bible does not describe our will as being totally free, but rather bound and even enslaved, explicitly calls our will bound and enslaved to sin and to Satan. And so if God didn't intervene, if he didn't choose to save some, well, none would be saved because none would ever come to believe and choose God on their own. God elected some people, therefore, out of necessity. Now, that being said, Calvinists do not believe in unconditional election because it's a logical corollary to total depravity, total inability. We don't believe it because it makes sense or it's logical. It's not to be believed because it's logical. It's to be believed because, again, it is expressly, explicitly taught in Scripture, contrary to conditional election. We're going to see that coming up. However, I will say it is reassuring to see, though, how logical it is, right? Don't get me wrong. It, that, that's an important test. It should make sense. It should compute with what the Bible says elsewhere. And, and after studying man's fallen condition, being totally depraved, totally unable to choose God, we would expect if anyone is going to get saved, God must intervene. He must set people apart. He must choose and indeed, that's what scripture teaches. So I just point that out that it's, it's not why we believe it, but it's incredibly reassuring to see how logical it is and that it does make perfect sense when you understand sin and, and depravity. Now, one more thing before we get into the biblical support for unconditional election, I'll point out just a, a brief few notes on the historical background of the doctrine, which just reiterates what we studied in the first few lessons. It was first really championed by Augustine. Remember him? I and mean, we studied that lesson on Augustine. who taught that God's sovereign grace was given to the elect according to God's own will, not man's. Augustine's monergistic view of salvation. Remember that word, monergism, that, that God alone is responsible for salvation. It was later picked up by all the great reformers. So all the guys who were breaking away from the Catholic Church in the 16th and 17th century, all the great reformers essentially picked up on these views of, of grace, the doctrines of grace and predestination. And they had a resurgence along with the true gospel in the Reformation. This includes John Calvin, who he's so associated with these teachings that the system today bears his name, Calvinism. But perhaps one of the most notable expressions of this doctrine of unconditional election came later in 1646. That's when a group of pastors and theologians, they met together to set forth a reformed confession of faith for the Church of England. And their product was the Westminster Confession of Faith, which many of you know. And it's still known today as being just a good summary. It's not infallible, it's not scripture, but to the degree that it reflects scripture, it's a good tool. And it's a good summary of what's called often as Reformed 
teaching uh, on, on salvation, reformed soteriology. And so just for a little bit more background, I printed out again for you in your notes uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3 of God's eternal decree. When we studied the Arminian side, we went back to their source documents. We went and studied the Remonstrance, which was the original document declaring some of their beliefs. We looked at some of what Arminius said and other notable Arminians. You know, let them speak from, from the horse's mouth, so to speak. And likewise here, here's like a, an old standard classical understanding of unconditional election. And so just for your own edification, we'll read a little bit of this. For the sake of time, we'll probably just look at the first five points. You can read the rest on your own. But look at these points in this third chapter of, of God's decree. They start with a, a election. Number one, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, notice, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offended to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Now you probably have to study that a little more because it's a little bit older English and written a certain way, but he's basically saying what point number one says is God is sovereign over all things, but man is still responsible. That's point number one. Now look at point number two. Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet he has not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. Here's where they're answering foreknowledge. They're saying that God's decree is not based on his foreknowledge. Look, does God foreknow all things? Yeah. But his decree of what will come to pass, it wasn't based on his foreknowledge. Rather, his foreknowledge of all things was based on his decree. All these things will, will take place. That his decree came first. So that's what point number two is saying. Now, point number three. It says, by the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. Point number three is teaching just the fact of election, that God predestined some to salvation. And at point number three, Arminians would agree, actually, that God predestined some. But where's the difference? Well, points four and five. Point number four, it says, These angels and men, thus predestinated and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their numbers so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. So there they're teaching this election is fixed. It's determined by God. And here point number five is where you really get unconditional election taught. Number five. Those of mankind that are predestinated, they say, unto life. God, before the foundation of the world was laid, and notice, according to his eternal and immutable purpose. And... The secret counsel and good pleasure of his will has chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them or any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving him thereunto and all to the praise of his glorious grace. It's wordy. 
It's, it's like a big run-on sentence. But what they're saying is God, before the foundation of the world, he chose the elect in Christ according to what? His own pleasure, his own purpose, his own will, according out of his grace and love, not according to foreseen faith or works or perseverance. So there you have it. That's a pretty, I mean, it's wordy, but that's a, a classic statement, definition on unconditional election. It, it really is a, the definition. No conditions are allowed. It's unconditional. God's own will, his own plan, his own purposes. There's more. You can read more. It goes on to talk about, uh, you know, some related things, salvation, reprobation. We'll get to that later. We don't need to cover those now. So there's your, your classical, basic Calvinist understanding of unconditional election. Any questions on just how they understand it? Joe? I have a question. Mm-hmm. I remember reading some of the passages that, that talks about God does everything to bring glory to his name. Mm-hmm. So that is his habit, you know, so to speak. And so that, that everything he does is to bring glory to his name, including the salvation of all of us. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, Joe making the point that God does all things for the glory of his name. That is his driving concern in, in creation and in, in existence, for he alone is worthy of that. And that is the driving force, even behind our salvation. Granted, we benefit. It's a reflection of his love. But we become trophies of his grace, and we add, magnify the glory of his name. So that is the driving force behind what God does, his own glory. Even sending his son, Jesus Christ, too. Yep, even sending Christ. That's right. Very good. Well, now let's transition into uh, the second part, which will take the rest of our time and also our time next week, which is Calvinist support for unconditional election. We've given some basic definitions so you, you understand what they believe. And I trust now you understand what both sides believe. And we've covered the support for the Arminian doctrine, which remember it was, there's no explicit verses. It's all inferred and deduced and logically supposedly put together. Uh, but we saw how that fell apart. But now we're going to spend our time saying, well, what do Calvinists say? What do they really teach? What verses do they have? Which do they actually teach this unconditional election? And, and let's get into it. We're going we're gonna to find out. We'll start with this. The Bible refers to God's people frequently as the elect, the chosen ones, the predestined, right? You know that? These words, they carry meaning. That's why they're used. They're used on purpose by the biblical authors to obviously teach that God chooses some for salvation. That's why these words are used. They teach what they seem to teach, that God chooses some for salvation. But as we learned in the last lesson, if the Arminian notion of conditional election is true, all these terms, they become empty and meaningless. It really means nothing to say that God elects some to salvation if really he only chooses those who chose him first. Really then becomes meaningless to speak of God choosing anybody. It really is like we're doing the choosing and God's just choosing after, after the fact. It's just, what's the point of calling us the elect? It, the, the terms all lose meaning and value. And they, they come to say that really man has a free choice. God does not. God had no free choice in whom to save. It was bound up in, in our choice. Of course, that's no choice at all. 
Election becomes a totally meaningless doctrine in Scripture if conditional election is true. And as we point out, if that's true, we should be called not the chosen ones, but the choosers. It should not be called predestination, but post-destination. That God chose us after we already chose him. But that's not how it is. The point I'm making here is, to the contrary, election, it's not a meaningless doctrine. And these words, they're not meaningless. They're in Scripture for a reason. They were used to teach what they seem to teach. When it says God chose, it meant he chose. Armenians, they're forced to say all the verses which speak of God choosing. They're forced to say, well, yeah, but God chose. He only chose those who chose him first. So he wasn't actually choosing. He was choosing those who chose him first. That's the whole point. Like That's what it all rests on. But no, that's not what the Bible ever says. And you can't just throw away all these verses which depict God as actively and proactively choosing. God's choice, it's not passive and it's not reactive. That's how they make him out. He's not actually actively choosing. He's just reactively choosing. He's not being proactive, but just reactive and and passive. He's just merely giving a label to those who chose him first. But that's, that's not what scripture teaches. And so now we're going to begin the case for unconditional election just by really repeating many of the verses that we've already studied which depict God as, as choosing. Because that, that, that stands. We, we don't throw them out. They stand and they teach what they seem to teach, that God is actually choosing, that his choice of the elect was not passive but active, not reactive but proactive. And that's point number one if, you're, if you care to fill in the blanks. God's choice of the elect was not passive, but active. Number one there, God's choice of the elect was not passive, but active. And you can say not reactive, but proactive. It was not passive, but active, not reactive, but proactive. And this indeed is it's an essential distinction between Calvinism and Arminianism because they, they make all these verses, they have to make them where God is somehow being reactive or passive in his choice. But you just tell me, what do all these verses, and there's more, what, what do they say? God is, his choice is never once described as being passive or reactive, like he's reacting to us, our foreseen faith, our foreseen works. It's always... He's actively choosing, and he's proactively choosing according to his own will. So we're just scratching the surface here, but let's just look at some of these verses. Now, to be fair, they should be familiar. We've studied these all already, actually, when we studied God's sovereignty and God's election. So I'm going to be kind of brief here. We've got a lot to cover. Mark 13, 20, it mentions the elect whom God chose. He's the active agent. He chose them. John 6, 37, 39. You have the verses speaking of the Father giving believers to the Son. He chooses them and he gives them. They weren't given to him. They weren't given to the Father. He actively calls them, sets them aside, and then gives them to the Son. God is the active agent, the proactive agent of salvation. John 10, 29. You see again, the Father, he gives sheep to the son. We'll say that verse a little bit later, where the sheep, they're a definite group that God has, he's called them out, set them aside, and now he actively gives them to the son. 
John 13, 18, John 15, 16, a pair of verses where Jesus teaches. He says, I know the ones whom I have chosen. And Christ says, you did not choose me. I chose you to the disciples in respect to their salvation to, to add. He is the chooser and they are the chosen ones. And his choice is active. He's not reacting to, well, you chose to follow me, so I'm making you my chosen ones. No, I chose you. I called you first before you even knew me. And then you get to John 17, the verses you have listed there, which we've read many times now. Christ in the high priestly prayer, so significant. Who, who does he pray for? He prays on behalf of only those given to him by the Father. The same people spoken of, the sheep, the elect, this group of people who were given to Jesus by the Father. Those are the only people he prays for, to the exclusion of the world. He says specifically, I do not pray for the world. I pray only for those whom you have given to me. Again, the only point, I know it's simple, but we're just showing verse after verse, God is active, God slash Christ. They're active, they're proactive in their choice of, of sinners to be saved, never reactive and passive. Colossians 3.12 speaks of those who have been chosen of God, the elect who are chosen of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That verse pictures God as being in control of our destiny. And do you see that? God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. It pictures not us in control of our destiny, but God in control of our destiny. And he destines and predestines us not for wrath, but for salvation. Who determines it? God does. And Paul says that in 1 Thessalonians as an encouragement. There's no talk of us determining our own destinies. And the word for destined there, tithemi in the Greek, it means literally to put, to cause, to appoint. God has caused our salvation. From, from start to finish, he has destined and predestined us. It's very active. There's nothing passive about that. And we are passive. We received whatever he destined us for, whether salvation or, or lack thereof. Titus 1.1, where Paul says, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he says, for the faith of those chosen of God. As Paul introduces uh, the, book, the letter to Titus, he introduces himself as an apostle, and he's on a mission for what? For the faith of whom? Of those who have been chosen. You see, there are certain people, they've been chosen. They are the elect. And Paul's mission as an apostle is to bring them to faith. He doesn't know who they are, nor do we. That's why we preach the gospel to everybody. But the elect, they're revealed by those who believe. Right? That's how you know who they are. Well, those who believe and persevere, well, they're the elect. But here's the point. They believe because they were chosen. It's never said they were chosen because they believe. That's totally backwards and never found in Scripture. Every case is they believe because they were chosen. They were of the chosen ones. Now, Paul ministers because he knows there's this group out there called the elect. They've been set aside by God, and he's going to preach the gospel 
and God will call them to faith, those whom he has chosen. It's very reminiscent, Titus 1, 1 of Acts 18, verses 9 through 10. That's where the Lord speaks to Paul in a night vision about ministering in Corinth. And God says to him, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. He's talking about preaching the gospel in Corinth. And God says, for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. And the God says, for I have many people in this city. You kind of remember that verse? God says to Paul that and he ends up ministering in Corinth for a year and a half. You might ask like, wait, weren't, weren't all the people in Corinth God's people? Doesn't he love everybody? Weren't, weren't they all his people? Well, yeah, in a sense. But in another sense, no. God speaks of the elect as his special people for whom he has a special love. So not everybody living in Corinth was God's special person. God has many people in the city, he says. It's a reference to his chosen ones. And God is telling Paul, you keep preaching because more people need to hear. Because that's Remember, the gospel is the means by which God brings to life the elect. And so he tells Paul, you just keep letting the gospel fly in Corinth and people will get saved. Why? Because I have many people in the city. And really, you can see God's sovereignty guaranteeing evangelism as opposed to thwarting evangelism. In Corinth, keep in mind, God was speaking of people who were not yet believers, yet they still were regarded as God's people. These people in Corinth that he's talking about, they had not come to salvation yet. That's why Paul was to stay and and preach. But they're still referred to as God's people. In what sense are they God's people? They don't believe yet, but they will because they're elect. You see, their faith will come about because they're elect. They're not elected because they have faith. You see how it works? Okay. Now, it's also worth reiterating that God's choice took place before creation, which just gives us a picture that this is a God who declares the end from the beginning, as we've seen many times. Like Ephesians 1.4 says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. There's, he's, he's active. He's proactive. He chose us before the foundation of, his, of the world, according to his own will. We'll spend a lot of time in Ephesians 1 next week. That's a, a critical passage on God's choice of the elect. Now, let's, let's uh, keep moving here. We're consider more the explicit teaching on the basis of God's choice. Now, beforehand in our study, we found zero verses teaching that man's free will of God was the basis of God's election. Remember, the whole study now is about how God chooses the elect, right? The basis of election. Is it man's will or God's will? That's, that's our, our whole question now. And we studied the Arminian side and found no verses actually teaching it was based on man's will or anything in man. And now what we're going to do here is point out several verses which explicitly teach just the opposite that God's choice of the elect was not based on him foreseeing either the merit or the faith of believers. And it, it goes to say that not only do Arminians not have a single verse that explicitly teaches what they, what they say, but we also have verses that explicitly teach the exact opposite, that God's choice was not based on man's foreseen merit or faith. So point number two, God's choice of the elect 
was not based on foreseen merit or good works. That's number two. We'll get to, get to three in a second here. Number two, God's choice of the elect was not based on foreseen merit or good works. And the tactic here is where we're first going to look at a bunch of verses that eliminate both deeds and even foreseen faith as the basis of God's choice. And that's the Arminian system. So we're starting, you know, kind of negatively to build the case for unconditional election. But first, there are verses that teach it wasn't based on foreseen works or foreseen faith. Then we'll come around and teach all the verses in a positive sense that teach it was based on God's will, God's purposes, God's plan. So you see where we're going? Now, so number two, though, the next step, God's choice of the elect was not based on forcing merit or good works. Sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And again, a lot of verses you can follow if you're fast, but I'll read this for you. Paul says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And he says, who has saved us and called us with the holy calling, not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. That's such a, a big verse. We'll see it many more times. Like let's, uh, I, I plan on repeating these verses because each time we might just focus on one nuance. But this verse is huge. God, he saved us. And he called us with the holy calling. Why? Not according to our works, but according to what? His own purpose and grace from eternity past, which was given to us from eternity past. Notice it doesn't say God saved us, not according to our works, but according to our foreseen faith. It doesn't say that. It says it saved us and called us, not according to works, but according to his own purpose. We'll come back to that, of course, later on. You have Titus 3.5, which similarly says that God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. God saved us. On what basis? Not on the basis of deeds we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. God's salvation from first to last was not motivated or driven by anything in us. And that includes his choice. It was all driven by his choice, which in turn was driven by his mercy. It all is just his mercy. And remember, God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. Remember, we'll get to that verse as well. Romans 9, 10 through 13. Here, uh, we'll, we'll study next week Romans 9 through 11 in full. That's huge. But just in brief, you have a picture of unconditional election in Jacob, you know, Jacob and Esau. Why was Jacob chosen and Esau not? Seems unfair. Why was one, they were twins, born at the same time, but Jacob was chosen to inherit the blessing. Why? And as a picture of unconditional election, Paul says, Romans 9, 10. It says, not only this, but there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, had done nothing, good or bad, 
so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We'll see this again. We'll come back to this verse big time next week, but it's, it's already so clear. Why did God, God choose Jacob over Esau? It's a picture of election, not because of works, but because of God's purpose, according to his choice. One was chosen, not the other. They had nothing to do with Jacob and Esau. They weren't even born yet. They had done nothing good or bad. They hadn't done nothing to merit God's choice. They had no possibility of forcing faith or deeds. They weren't even born. But God nonetheless chose one. Why? Because he wanted to. It was his purpose, his plan, his own good pleasure. What, what can Paul mean by such language if unconditional election is not true? And this is why Arminians tend to avoid Romans 9, because it, is, it says so much, and it takes an awful lot of explaining to make Romans 9 mean something other than it so clearly says that God chose one over the other according to his own will, and that's it. And explicitly says, not according to our works. Luke 4, we'll skip for the sake of time, but it, it picked, it's a great, another great picture of unconditional election. I'll point out Ephesians 1.4 again. God chose us in Christ before creation so that we would be holy and blameless. Not that uh, he did not foresee that we were holy and blameless, so he chose us. Rather, he chose us that we would be holy and blameless. Again, pointing out God's choice was not conditioned on any merit in our, in our, our behalf. So you see, election comes before a person's salvation. It's not based on anything good in the person. Believers did not earn or merit their election. God's mercy on them was not based on anything foreseen. No foreseen merit, no foreseen righteous. God didn't choose people because he foresaw that they were righteous. He chose them that they would become righteous. And this even includes a person's faith. Now, so far, point number two, we've seen some very clear verses teaching that God did not choose people based on their foreseen deeds or merit. Arminians would agree. They would say, yeah, we believe that. We don't think God chose people based on their foreseen deeds. We believe that God chose people based on their foreseen faith. However, we have still even here plenty of verses expressly teaching otherwise. Just as God did not choose the elect based on their foreseen deeds of righteousness, he also did not choose the elect based on their foreseen faith. Arminians believe that God chose the elect because they believed, but scripture teaches that God chose the elect so that they would believe. You get that? Arminians believe that God chose the elect because he foresaw that they believed, but scripture teaches that God chose the elect so that they would believe and be saved. So point number three, God's choice of the elect was not based on foreseen faith. It was not based on foreseen faith. And here we go, John 10. You can, you can turn there if you're quick. John chapter 10 again. Jesus says, 
the people they're not believing him, and so he's explaining why they don't believe in him, using the analogy of sheep again. This is pretty significant. John 10.25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And he continues on. But see what's going on here. There's this group of people. They're not believing in Jesus. They're rejecting him. He's explaining why they don't believe. And why is it? Why do they not believe? Verse 26. Because, he says, you are not of my sheep. They don't believe because they're not sheep. If they were sheep, they would believe. You see what comes first? Belief or status as a sheep? What comes first? He says, well, your status as sheep comes first. And if you were a sheep, you would come to believe. The shepherd calls the sheep. And when, when the shepherd calls, the sheep follow. When God makes a call of salvation, who answers? The sheep. Who are the sheep? Those chosen, set apart by God, the Father, unto Christ the Son. Notice he doesn't say, you guys aren't my sheep because you don't believe. He doesn't say that. That would be backwards. He doesn't say, you're not part of my sheep because you don't believe. Just believe and you'll be my sheep. That, that might be how people preach today, but that's not what Jesus said. He said, you don't believe because you're not part of my sheep. The sheep were appointed by God beforehand, those who will believe when the shepherd calls to them. Look back at verse 16, actually. Christ says earlier, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. He's talking about Gentiles here. This is the Gentile mission. They are also his sheep. But keep in mind, when Jesus says this, these Gentiles he's talking about, they weren't believers. They're still Gentiles. They're still unbelievers when he says this. Yet he still calls them his sheep. They're still his sheep. Now he still has to call them. And in their moment of salvation, Christ the shepherd will call them and they will believe. He says, they will hear my voice. But notice, these are people who, they're not even believers yet, but they're called sheep. And when the shepherd calls, they will believe. Sheep are those whom God has specifically given to the Son. None of them will be lost. These are the people whom Jesus prays for. This is is unconditional election. It's very clear. God is not choosing them based on their faith. They don't become sheep because they believed. God did not foresee, oh, these people will believe, I'll make them my sheep. It's just, he made sheep. He declared sheep, and they believe. So again, what comes first? Your status as sheep, which is the same as elect, or your belief? Election comes first. It's not in retrospect. Never taught that. Never taught that. Acts 13.48, the next verse. After Paul's preaching, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Another huge verse. How many people believed when Paul preached? As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. It doesn't say that as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. It's never backwards like that. It says how many people believed? How many people heard the gospel and responded 
to Paul's preaching as the call of the shepherd went out through the gospel. How many people? Well, as many as were appointed to believe. That's how many believed. That's pretty clear. That's pretty strong. The word appointed means ordained. They were enrolled in the Lamb's book of life. Not because they believed. Simply, as we will see in the next section, and we've actually already seen a lot of verses, simply because God willed. It was according to God's will that they were appointed. No other explanation is given. But what is consistent is their faith was the fruit of their election, not the cause of their election. That's, that's what all these verses are teaching. So get that point. Their faith was the fruit, the result of their election. It's never the cause of election. That's consistent in all these verses. There's no exception. Another verse in Romans 9, you can turn there likewise quickly. Romans 9, 14. Another verse we'll see more of next week. Right after Jacob and Esau... He knows some will say that it's not just, so Paul says, what shall we say then? In verse 14, there's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. What's he talking about? It does not depend. He's talking about God's choice, right? Why did God choose Jacob over Esau? According to his own purpose. He anticipates the objection, verse 14. That's not fair. That's not just. But he responds, well, God's perfectly just. We're not talking about his justice, though. We're talking about his mercy. And he's free to have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. And it doesn't depend on man, the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. That's an explicit verse saying God's choice does not depend on man's will. Right? Doesn't it say that? It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. It's not about, your will had nothing to do with it. And your efforts, nothing to do with it. But on God who has mercy. It's up to him. That's just the bottom line. And it's, it's clear. You may not like it. Right? And a lot of people will we'll get to that. They reject unconditional election. They just don't like it. And so they'll accept the fact that conditional election is not really taught in Scripture, but Will you just submit to what the word so clearly says? Speaking of Romans chapter 10, verse 20, he quotes Isaiah and he says of God, I I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest for those who did not ask for me. Talking about the Gentiles, but the point stands that God was found by those who weren't even seeking him. How was he found? Well, because he he opened their eyes. He saved them. He, He chose them. This is God's work, God's action. 1 Corinthians 1. I'll just summarize that for the sake of time. Time is running out here. But it mentions how God chose the weak and the foolish that none may boast. And he says in verse 30 that you are in Christ by God's doing. That's, as we pointed out last time, that's just a complete contradiction to Arminian teaching. They say you're in Christ, you're saved by your own doing. You chose. It was your choice. And you you have free will, so you're in Christ by your doing. But no, God says you're in Christ by his doing. Now, that's why. And that's why you have nothing to boast about. Of course, if conditional election is true, you have something to boast about. Namely, your faith, 
you chose to believe you're on free will, you're special. The whole verse, the passage teaches that, no, God chose those who had nothing. They were weak. They were foolish. And that's a perfect place for Paul to teach if he wanted to, that God chose those whom he foresaw would believe. But again, no verses teach that because it's not true. I mentioned 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 5. It says this, or 2 through 4. It says, We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, the steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. What that's saying is, the point he's making is, of the Thessalonians, their faith, their hope, and their love, they were all evidence of God's choice of them. It wasn't the basis of God's choice. Their response to the gospel was evidence of their prior election. So the point is, their faith, their hope, their love, that was all evidence, proof of their election, not the basis of their election. You get it? And so talking about foreseen faith, it's never, again, pictured as the basis of election. It's always the fruit, the result of election. God elects us that we would come to believe when the shepherd calls, because that's the only way we will believe if he chooses some. Second Thessalonians 2, 13 through 14. Again, he says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you. From the beginning, for salvation, through sanctification, by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel. It's another clear verse teaching that God chose them from the beginning for salvation by means of the Spirit and faith. But again, you'll see clearly faith was the means of their salvation, not the basis of it. It's not the basis of their election, merely the means of their salvation. But God's choice was unconditional, which is why God, or rather Paul, he thanks God for them. In that verse, Paul praises God. He doesn't praise them. If they were saved by their own free choice, he should be praising them and their faith. He should be praising God that you chose to believe. But he doesn't. He praises God entirely because it was God's doing entirely. James 2.5 God chose the poor to be rich in faith, heirs of his kingdom. Again, they merited nothing. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11. Another verse teaching that faith and works, they confirm election. They're not the basis of election. You can read that on your own. We're, we're nearly out of time here. So keep in mind, Arminians, they like to think of faith and repentance as being ours, they're of our own free choice. But it's so consistent that Scripture also teaches that not only does God choose us not based on faith, but that faith itself is a gift of God. Faith and repentance are actually described as gifts of God, that He gives them to us. He enables us to believe and causes us to believe. And so apart from God's gift, which is tied to His choice, None would come to believe in him. Now, we're out of time, so we won't read these verses, but as homework, you can study these verses here. Faith as a gift, repentance as a gift. Maybe we'll touch on them briefly at the start of next week. We've studied them actually many times before here at the church.
And so I'm sure you know them well. Uh, but even faith and repentance are gifts. It's just the scriptures are consistent that salvation belongs to the Lord. And he bestows it on those whom he pleases. Well, this is as far as we'll get for tonight. Still, though, we've made some significant gains. Understand the Bible has a lot to say about God's choice of people for salvation. It's not silent. We're not left to infer how God made his choice or deduce as Arminians do. They're forced to infer, well, God, he must have made his choice based on those whom he foresaw would believe. But now we've, we've thoroughly pointed out, not only are there zero verses which teach that, but to the contrary, we've seen a lot of verses that teach that God made his choice and had nothing to do with foreseen merit or foreseen faith. And we've already seen explicit teaching that God chose people, not because they believed, but in order that they would believe. Our case against conditional election has only been solidified. And at the same time, that lays a foundation for the case for unconditional election. We've seen that, boy, what's the basis of God's choosing? Well, we've seen today, number one, God chooses. He actively and proactively chooses. And it's not according to, to works, and it's not according to forcing faith. That's already building the case for unconditional election. And we'll, we'll finish it next time by adding number four, that God chooses according to his own will. And then we'll look at some very strong and clear verses that teach just that explicitly, clearly. He chooses according to his own will, his own plan, his own purposes. And that is unconditional election. So we'll save the rest for next time. If you want, there's no real homework, but you can you know, study and advance those verses and you'll, you'll benefit from it. Let me pray here and dismiss us. Our time is up. You can bring a question after. For the sake of time, I'll, I'll cap it off here. Let's go ahead and end a word of prayer. Our great God, we are thankful tonight for our time in your word. And we confess you are supreme. You are the sovereign God of, of all creation. You made all things. You rule all things. You purpose all things according to your plan. And much of your plan, Lord, is hidden in your counsel. Yet we know, as you've revealed, you work all things for your glory. That includes creation. That includes new creation, our salvation. This whole plan of redemption is unto your glory, Lord. And, and the way you get the glory is, is by doing it from start to last. That this is, this is your doing. Salvation is of the Lord. We, we confess that, that you are supreme. And that we owe nothing to ourselves. We were not special or wise, no more righteous, nor even having faith of our own. But it all comes from your hand. And this is why we, we have nothing to boast in save for, for Christ and, and you, Lord, and your plan for us. So we do that this evening. We confess your supremacy. We, we boast in your grace and mercy through which you chose us. We know we didn't deserve it by any means. But by this, we can magnify your grace all the more. And, and by this, you get gro uh, greater glory as we're trophies of this pure grace. So I pray we can leave tonight greater, uh, with a greater appreciation for, for grace, for this choice that was made that we didn't deserve. And, and may not even fully understand, uh, but we can sure thank you for it. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.